Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn Research, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake artificially inflated drug prices. Today's episode is the sixth one in our ongoing Drug Pricing 101 series. As a reminder, the goal of our Drug Pricing 101 series is to introduce the core concepts of the U.S. drug supply chain to hopefully foster a better understanding of the data available at 46brooklyn.com. As with any educational endeavor, I've attempted to present the information in a logical manner to hopefully ease understanding. However, I want to recognize and acknowledge that everyone learns differently. To that end, if you have a question or comments regarding these materials, please reach out to us on our website. Your comments and questions will only make our content better. On our last episode, we reached the end of the direct drug supply chain participants. We have been spending so much time talking about when we discussed the pharmacy's role in creating and setting prices for drugs. As a reminder, pharmacies set usual and customary, or UNC, prices, which represents the price for a drug for people who don't have insurance and would pay cash for their drugs. So it's also known as the pharmacy's cash price. Pharmacy UNC prices are highly variable and largely irrelevant in today's system because most people have insurance and thus insurer-derived prices, not pharmacy cash prices, will determine what price most people pay. This is because the current system creates incentives for the business aspect of pharmacy to set high prices to maximize their margin which transitions us very well into today's conversation, insurer set prices. As a reminder, when we started this Drug Pricing 101 podcast, we began by talking about the direct drug supply chain participants because they were hopefully a little easier to understand. These were organizations that physically touched the medication people take And so we started with the drug manufacturer, moved to the wholesaler, and then on to the pharmacy. And while that flow of product is hopefully fairly easy to understand, we need to begin to introduce non-direct supply chain participants into the conversation in order to continue talking about drug prices in this country. And to start, I should probably provide a quick overview of how people get drug insurance in the first place. Generally speaking, most people in this country have health insurance, a fact we reviewed on our last episode when we identified that approximately 90% of people have prescription drug insurance. But what is the source of that drug insurance? Well, again, speaking in generalities, people typically get their drug insurance coverage from their employer. And to be clear, the employer providing prescription drug insurance is generally speaking doing so as part of a package of other benefits, such as medical coverage like doctors and hospital visits, but can also include dental and vision and all these other things we need to keep us healthy. 
That said, there are other sources of insurance, such as benefits available to the elderly in this country, most often recognized as Medicare, or benefits available to the poor in this country, most often recognized as Medicaid. In addition to those sources, a person may get coverage for drugs related to a workplace injury through their employer's general workers' comp insurance and not their general employer-sponsored health plan. The list goes on, but this is not the point of this podcast episode. Rather, the point is that given the nature and variability of sources of insurance, one might believe that each of these systems is going about delivering drug insurance in a variety of ways. And that is, generally speaking, not the case. Why? Because each potential source of these prescription benefits is contracting with the same type of organization. Those organizations are known as pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, though they may go by other names such as pharmacy benefit administrators, PBAs. Either way, their principal function is to help the sources of health insurance, employers, Medicare, Medicaid, effectuate their drug coverage. They do this by functioning as a type of transaction facilitator, helping sellers of drugs, i.e. pharmacies, connect with purchasers of drugs, i.e. those sources of drug insurance we just reviewed. So let's take a moment and unpack that concept a little farther. We must first start with the basics of any transaction that involves a buyer, a seller, and an intermediary whose role is to facilitate the transaction between the first two parties. When it comes to a prescription drug transaction, the payer is buying products and services from the pharmacy on behalf of a beneficiary, that is, the person who has insurance coverage. The pharmacy is selling these same products and services to the payer and the patient, and the PBM is the intermediary that is helping facilitate the transaction. For successfully facilitating this transaction, the PBM receives a fee. Recall that on episode four, when we were talking about NADAC pricing, that is national average drug acquisition cost, we acknowledge that we want an efficient marketplace because that efficiency will help lower costs and will hopefully save everyone money. What I just described broadly is fundamentally no different from any other market where there's an intermediary helping facilitate a transaction between a buyer and a seller. When you buy shares of a company's stock, for example, both you and a seller are likely using a stock broker to help facilitate the transaction. And for their services, both you and the seller pay a fee to your respective brokers. That fee is transparent, and is subject to considerable competition within the marketplace. In other words, if that fee is prohibitively high, both you and the seller will quickly look for different brokers to facilitate your transaction. The underlying reason why buying and selling shares of stock is so efficient is because both the buyer and the seller have visibility into the price of the underlying product, i.e., one share of stock. The stock market sets this price and it changes in real time 
with changes in supply and demand for the stock. If at the time of purchase, a share is trading for $70, both the buyer and seller can see that the stock is priced at $70 and both expect to transact right around that level and pay a small fee to their broker to do so. Note that both the buyer and the seller transact around the same transparent price. A prescription drug transaction does not work this way because there is very poor transparency into the price of the product. That's the whole purpose of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) As we have discussed at lengths on this podcast to date, it's very difficult to obtain the drug's price. There are at least nine different prices available for the same product at the same time, most of which are not set by competitive market prices. There is the AWP average wholesale price, the suggested wholesale price, SWP, the wholesale acquisition cost, WAC, AMP, MAC, NADAC, to name a few others which we have ourselves reviewed on this podcast. Ultimately, these numerous price points creates a situation where the buyer and seller could pay different prices for the same product within a given transaction with the differences between the two accruing to the intermediary. In the financial world, this is called arbitrage. Arbitrage is, and I'm quoting here, the purchase and sale of an asset to profit from an imbalance in the price that exists as a result of market inefficiencies and would therefore not exist if markets were perfectly efficient. So we start to see how our overview of the PBM is already starting to crack under what analogies we might use to understand their function. PBMs are these transaction facilitators helping pharmacies sell their medications to health plans looking to purchase drugs for their covered enrollees. But because there's not an agreed to market clearing transparent price for drugs in this country, PBMs are also price setters because they control the last pricing benchmark we plan on discussing during our Drug Pricing 101 series, and that is the price known as Maximum Allowable Cost, or MAC. Well, what is MAC? According to the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacies, a trade group who represents PBMs, MAC is a pricing payment model contractually agreed to in the marketplace. They go on to say that MAC ensures that patients and those purchasing health insurance benefits get the lowest price on generic drugs. There are some key points to unpack here in AMCP's definition of generic drugs. First is to recognize that they are more or less confirming the point we've made on our prior podcast that drug prices in this country come down to contract language. We've reviewed this a little bit before, but recall that when a pharmacy is selling a medication, it's generally doing so to a person with insurance, and that person's insurance via the PBM will have terms which state that the payment will be the lesser of their negotiated rate or whatever the pharmacy bills known as UNC. We now know that the fee schedule is being predicated off of a MAC rate for generic drugs, which in turn means that most drugs in the system 
are paid for at a MAC rate, given that roughly 90% of all drugs in this country are generic and 90% of all transactions are being paid at network rates or this fee schedule. So how is a MAC rate set? Well, again, according to AMCP, MAC pricing is designed to promote competitive pricing for pharmacies as an incentive to purchase the least costly generic drug available in the market, regardless of the manufacturer's list price. If a pharmacy purchases the higher priced product, it may not make as much profit, or in limited instances, may lose money on that specific purchase. Alternatively, if they purchase generic drugs at a more favorable price available in the market, they will be more likely to make a profit. Turning away from AMCP's definition of how MAC is set and going to an actual PBM, and again, I'm going to quote from CVS Caremark, one of the largest PBMs in the country, CVS Health regularly assesses aggregate information not specific to any particular pharmacy from drug wholesalers and third-party sources, including publicly available lists such as those published by Medicaid, CMS, and pharmacy feedback to determine market pricing for generic drugs to establish our MAC pricing. Given the complex and dynamic nature of market pricing for generic drugs, the MAC will change throughout the year. We believe our MAC prices reflect current market pricing and our best understanding of the marketplace and product availability." End quote. Taking some liberty in interpreting what they're saying, it boils down to this. We know that there are many price points available for a given drug, and we're going to perform some data analytics to create our best guess of what pricing actually looks like. Note that each PBM has free reign, absent state-specific laws, to determine what drugs to pick to put on its MAC list and how those MAC list prices are arrived at. According to the National Community Pharmacist Association, or NCPA, PBMs use their MAC pricing list as a revenue stream. NCPA states, because of this lack of clarity, many PBMs use their MAC list to generate significant revenue. Typically, they utilize an aggressively low MAC list price to reimburse their contracted pharmacies and a different, higher list of prices when they sell to their clients or plan sponsors, end quote. I'd note that this potential issue only exists largely because we cannot agree to what a drug's price actually is. Is it AWP, as is the basis of most contracts? Is it NADAC, as is the basis of most pharmacies' invoice costs? Is it UNC, the price the pharmacy would like to make? Or is it MAC, the price the PBM would like to pay? Today, none of those pricing benchmarks may actually matter within our drug pricing debate because ultimately what you or anyone pays for a prescription drug is based on what the contract of your insurer via your PBM says you pay for prescription drugs. And that may mean anything because PBM contracts are notoriously complex, riddled with conflicting definitions and terms and ultimately leave a lot of latitude for PBMs to determine what you ultimately pay. If you think about it this way, this is why there is perhaps so much disparity 
in the experience of individuals when it comes to drug pricing. The contract governing your price experience for drugs may be very different from someone else's, causing you to say drugs are very affordable and me to say drug pricing is very unaffordable, even if we're talking about the same drug dispensed at the same pharmacy on the same day. The analogy my friend Antonio likes to use is picture this. You're in a grocery store buying milk. You go to check out, and lo and behold, the person in front of you is also buying milk. What are the odds? Well, you notice that their milk at checkout is $4 per gallon, a pretty reasonable price for milk, at least in line with what I've paid for milk this past month. But as I go to checkout, my milk is $25 per gallon. As ridiculous as that sound, it happens all the time with prescription drugs. The person in line at the pharmacy may pick up the same drug as you're about to, but your price experience may be very different. Ultimately, if there was one market clearing price for drugs that we could all agree upon, then the malleable price setting function that exists within the system today goes away as it's less valuable. A plan sponsor could just pay the price directly without a transaction facilitator. It might not be as timely or efficient of a payment, but they wouldn't need to rely on contract maneuvering to try and get that fair price for drugs. If there was one market clearing price for drugs, we also potentially have a more efficient marketplace where the PBM's transaction facilitator role is more clear cut. PBM contract terms would not play as big of a role in determining costs because costs would be known and hopefully market driven. Believe it or not, that brings us to the end of our Drug Pricing 101 series. We set out with a goal to review drug pricing benchmarks, which we did by starting with the manufacturer and ending with the insurer. Along the way, we explored some of the incentives the various drug price points create or are responding to. To be clear, there are more drug pricing benchmarks we could discuss, such as drug prices within the 340B program, or when administered in a provider setting, but those concepts are best kept for another series. Rather, we're going to take what we've learned with our nine pricing benchmarks and begin to unpack how that knowledge helps shape our current understanding of drug prices in this country. Before we launch our next series, our next episode is going to be a Q&A where we tackle some of the drug pricing questions this podcast has generated. This is your final call, so to speak, to send in questions for that podcast. On that episode, I'll be joined by some of the other team members at 46 Brooklyn, so I promise you won't want to miss it. As always, I want to end this episode by thanking you all for listening, and I hope you'll tune in for our next episode. The 46 Brooklyn podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.